You're listening to Urbanite Radio. Today's episode, Conceal and Carry, by Sean Christopher Lewis. Connecticut at midnight is a ghost town. People aren't on streets, people aren't on highways. Transport trucks are lined up on off-ramps, sleeping it off. This dark, big patch of dark. I'm in the passenger seat thinking, what am I doing? My wife is calling me on my cell phone, newborn baby at home, but I can't answer. Not yet. I'm not a captive, I just... Well, it's complicated. I met my driver, Rob, because friends had introduced us. Maybe he would like to talk. Maybe it would do something for him. I I could write something about him. Maybe getting his story out would help him heal. Rob's not very distinct. 5'9", maybe 180 pounds, regular job, regular life. Well, regular, except that he has a son that was killed by a bullet in a classroom from a gun that was purchased by a person who was basically crazy, but was given a gun, but that's the law, or at least our rights. Well, it's definitely something. Rob told me he was a single dad. That's what he said when I met him. I didn't ask what that meant, since he didn't have a son now, but that's a stupid question. I mean, when you have kids, you realize, here or not, alive or dead, you're always a dad. More than anything, you're always a dad. That's a for better or worse type of thing. And Rob's situation is worse. He's handing me a printout of emails he's gotten, and he's highlighted. Your son's not really dead, says one. The whole thing is just a hoax, says another. Come clean. Be honest. Rob drives as I read this. Windows up. Heat is on. No radio. Him quiet. Until... He leans over me, his coat brushing across me, and he opens the glove box. Now, there's only certain things we keep in our glove boxes. Insurance cards, sunglasses, receipts, handguns. I'm going to use that, he says. I'm going to use that thing tonight. And we drive. The phone in my pocket vibrating the whole way. Now the thing is, I like guns. I'm not supposed to say that. I'm not supposed to like guns. Liberals don't like guns. We run and hide from guns, literally. Liberals say people who own guns are retarded and have small dicks. They're liberal, so they don't say it like that, but it's basically what they mean. So, you're listening to a small dick, retarded monologue. Which you might have figured out long before that sentence. So, how did I fall off the path so far? How did I lose my liberal god? Was I abused? Manipulated? Was there a priest? I met guns when I was eight years old, and it was like meeting a person. Remington stood against the corner wall in my stepfather's mudroom. 
It was the first room you entered in the house, a place to kick off shoes and toss coats on the ground after hours out working on the fences or putting up boards on the garage. This was in upstate New York, and I lived by no one. It wasn't farm life, but it was rural. My backyard, woods. To the left of us, a dumping ground. To the right, a dog that never shut up. And in the mudroom, not locked up or guarded, stood Remington. My wife's parents' home is the same thing. Even now, you go into their home, two retired school teachers in rural Canada, and sitting in the first floor laundry off the kitchen stands Remington too. As a kid, I never touched it. A lot of tragic stories about kids and guns, disastrous games played while their parents were in the next room. I was curious. I was aware, but I kept my distance. My room was above the mudroom. Late at night, I'd, I'd hear my brothers stumble in drunk. I'd remember the nozzle of that gun pointed up, and I worried they'd bump into the gun and it would go off, and the, the bullet would crash through the ceiling, through my bed, and into my heart, and I thought, how mad people would be at me. That last part doesn't make sense, but the whole thing doesn't make sense. I was a kid, and I was terrified. And that was the point. And one afternoon, when no one was around, I came into the mudroom. I tried to hang my coat onto my brother's coats that protruded from hooks on the wall. I turned around without thinking. My coat fell. It hit the gun. It sent it tumbling to the ground. Nozzle pointed at me. Metal crashing. Smack! I braced! And nothing. Nothing. I cried, but nothing. Maybe that's when I became a liberal. I cried at a gun. And then I got angry. I got angry this thing had power over me, kept me up at night, made me jump and cry. I thought about my friends making fun of me if they'd seen me. Nothing is worse as a school-aged boy than to seem scared of something, to seem weak, to be so obviously vulnerable. So I took the gun. I took it and picked it up and I walked around the house. I pointed it in the mirror. I pointed it at the dog. I pointed it at myself. And I went outside, off into the woods. I am now just a boy and a gun. Our backyard descended a big slope of a hill that then led to a dark opening, and then it was just trees. It scared me as a kid. Another shameful admission. Because it was so isolated and it connected to an unmarked dumping area, you'd hear voices, even though it was our land. I'd play army back there by myself some days until I heard things, or imagined I'd heard them. And then I would run for my life. My parents would make fun of me. Nothing back there. Overactive imagination. Scared of his own shadow. I walked back and aimed at squirrels and chipmunks. And then I heard a voice behind me past a bush. Someone there? I asked. Instinctively, I hid the gun at my side, out of sight, a bush hiding it. A part of me so worried I'd been caught doing something bad. By who? I don't know. But caught nonetheless. And I hid the gun, and I turned and looked. And on a shallow part of the creek where you could stand without getting wet, I saw a man I had never seen before. Tank top, tattoos on arms, one of a woman like Betty Page, the other of a knife. Face unshaven, hair erect, jeans, looking at me. Hey, he says. Where's your parents, kid? I say nothing. 
You live in that big house on the hill over there. Didn't see a car. Thought it was empty. He starts to walk towards me, and I back up and stumble a bit, and he says, Whoa! Don't back up, kid. You could hurt yourself. And he laughs. And he adds, Couldn't outrun me anyway. And I don't know what to do. Like an hour earlier, I want to cry. I want to break out in tears, and I do what I learned. I point the gun at him. He takes another step, and I do what I've seen my brother Brian do with it. I pull back the hammer, and we both hear it. A bullet in the chamber. And he stops, and he stares at me. We don't move. And then... He runs opposite direction, and I trip over myself walking backwards, pointing wildly, rotating, aiming at nothing, aiming at everything, panicked, until I get to the opening, and up our hill, and through our front door, until all doors and windows are locked, and I sit on our living room couch, looking through the back window, gun up, till my parents get home, and ask me what I'm doing, and I don't tell them. I am not vulnerable, and I do not need their help. A horror movie was on the TV, WPIX, Channel 11 in New York. No more horror movies, they say. Remington goes back to the wall. And I go to bed. No longer scared of the gun living underneath me. I can defend myself. Understand? Might is right. Some would assume that this is the motto of the NRA, but really it's firearm safety education, marksmanship training, shooting for recreation. It was founded by soldiers, survivors of the Civil War, Yankees, liberals like me, who were pissed off at how many people died because they didn't know how to fire a goddamn gun. The North had greater resources, more men, but the South could shoot. The North couldn't. And that needed to change for prosperity. So, these Yankee liberals said, we need a place to train, somewhere to prepare for those rednecks again. And New York State said, did I hear rednecks? Yes, you did. And a $25,000 land grant was deeded. General Ambrose Burnside, which is a badass name, gun show or not, Ambrose Burnside, badass, was made the head of the group, the head of training, the head of what was basically a militia. And all was well. The North trained, the South rebuilt, peace instated. For years. And then, we got a problem, see? 1920. Oh, 1920. Picture Jimmy Cagney talking to Jimmy Cagney. They passed the 18th Amendment, boss. What's that mean? No more alcohol, boss. Yeah, we've never outlawed guns, but drinks, yes. Alcohol is outlawed, and some guys come up. Now it's a million Jimmy Cagneys. There's a dollar to be made here, boss. How do you figure? Moonshine, speakeasies, the American way. And the Flatfoots? We can't outmaneuver them. Who needs to? We can just outgun them. Sawed-off shotguns and machine guns. Early automatic weapons. What do you think, John? You're still doing the thinking, Inspector. Might give it a whirl. Anything you say. Anything goes sour with a heist, they'll look like sieves when we get through with them. For five years, it's like the news are awash with murder and mayhem from the big cities. Seven gang members were murdered execution-style by men dressed as Chicago police officers in what is being called the St. Valentine's Massacre. 
Capone. Bonnie and Clyde, Dillinger firing his machine guns in the air after bank robberies. We're the sexiest criminals in America, says the crime underling to his boss. To which his boss, maybe like a Brando guy, says, Yes, yes we are. Sex was how early guns were sold. Colt guns, specifically. There's a Colt plant in Connecticut. And Sam Colt, poor, poor Sam Colt, was an abandoned child growing up. An indentured farm worker who, one day filled with anger at abandonment and a need to prove himself and an American interest in a buck, overheard soldiers talking about how revolutionary a gun would be if you could fire five times without reloading. And Colt set his mind to building that gun. And when he did, he created endorsements. He engraved the guns with the name of princes he gave them to. He had paintings of Western expansion made where his guns stood prominently in the battle scene. Colt guns taking out Native Americans left and right like a weird Tom Cruise movie. He created the celebrity endorsement before a Kardashian knew what an app was and before Jordan trademarked his Jumpman pose. It was chaos, and guns were at the forefront. And the NRA? They hated it. They pounded on the doors of President Franklin D. Roosevelt and said, What are you doing about this? Get off your ass, big stick! You know what you can do about these murderers and guns? What? asked the old wheelchair-bound man. You can stop them. The NRA said this. You can stop them, and we can help. So, the National Firearms Act gets drafted. So does the National Gun Control Act. The NRA lays down the rules. We will impose high taxes on machine guns, sawed-off shotguns, and silencers, making it all but impossible for average people to own them. We will require a permit to carry a concealed weapon. We will add five years to a prison sentence if a gun is used in a crime, and ban non-citizens from buying handguns. Carl Frederick, the NRA president at the time, stood before Congress and said, I have never believed in the general practice of carrying weapons. I do not believe in the such promiscuous toting of guns. Hmm. What kindler, gentler times they must have been living in, where you didn't have to fear for the safety of yourself or others, or worry about the lunatic next door. Imagine being a father and doing this routine. You sit in a room and you pretend it is your son's school day and you are your son. You position your chair the way the police told you it was. You face the door, which is terrifying because you see him. You see him first, the man. You're taking out your math book and you look up. And it must seem like a movie, you think, for your son. It must seem like TV. In the window of the door is a person, but they don't look like a person. They have on a mask and padding, and it's all dark like a Star Wars character. And you're little enough to probably not even feel the fear. He looks like a cartoon. So as your son did, you sit there and you try to think, what would I do? What would my son have done? Rob is sure. If it was my son, he'd probably wave. He'd probably wave at him. And what would he do, the man with the gun? Would he wave back? Would he wave at your son? 
the months after his son was killed, much like the months after every mass killing, gun sales spiked around the country. Rob was one of the men purchasing. He'd never owned a gun, but he was having nightmares regularly, panic, and he spoke very openly about the biggest failure he could see in his life would be that he could not, that he did not protect his son. He is not who a media gives sound bites to. He bought a pistol, used, he tells me. He didn't know where to go, so he went to a gun range, and they directed him to a gun cellar, and the gun cellar directed him to a small firearm. There, the shop owner tells Rob that the best guns for beginners are typically a 22 or a 380. Of course, you get proficient with that, and you can move up the classes to a 9mm, and then to the really big boys, the real stopping power. He tells him he never thought of it being a graduated process, that you bought one gun and graduated to the next, your own strength and proficiency and need growing. In the end, you judge a few things, caliber, the size of the bullet's diameter and the damage it leaves behind, and recoil, the backwards momentum you get after you shoot the gun. You should pick it up. There's a gun plant in Connecticut. Colt Manufacturing. Same Colt from the celebrity endorsements. Same Colt from the Colt 45. The revolver, not the beer. Same Colt that is in the glove compartment. Go on. Pick it up. I like Rob. I do, but I don't like this. It's heavy. I think everyone who holds a gun for the first time notices that it's heavy. Which it should be for what it can do. But the heaviness means something more. It means... I think... It means it's real. I gotta call my wife. She keeps calling. Yeah, he says. Of course. Where are you? Can you pick some things up? Well, I'm out with Rob, I tell her. What does she need? He can hear. My phone sounds like shit anyway. We can get it. She keeps talking, and he talks too. And as surreal as it is, on this death march, I'm passing my phone over to Rob so he and my wife could have a chat about toiletries. A sits bath. Sure, I know that. More aspirin, oh, I remember that. <laughs> and pickles. Really, pickles. My wife didn't have the pickles thing, though. That's cute. When my son was born, I stopped thinking about my own death. I'd been obsessed with it for some time, at least since my 20s. I would have these moments, almost daily, where it would hit me like a realization that I was going to die, that I would, at some point, cease. And it's not revelatory to hear me say that, we all know we're going to die, but I would feel it so concretely, so succinctly, that it would be a panic. And I'm not exaggerating when I say, I felt it every day. Usually at night, when I laid in bed, I would think it. I would stare up at the ceiling and think, one day... None of this will exist, because you won't exist. And then I had my son. It wasn't magic. I didn't stop thinking about my imminent demise. I haven't stopped thinking about it. I'm just okay with it. I'm okay with dying, so long as I make things better, easier, safer. Safer for my son. If I can do that, I can die. Which is a very big step for me. I can die with some grace. But if he died before me, 
Could I live with grace? Could I live? I used to think it was an overstatement, but now, I don't know. See, before him, I was scared of the world, and I felt I could run and hide and avoid it. If a street was too dark, if I felt people walking over my shoulder, I'd let them pass. I'd shuffle to a more out-of-my-way block. But my son... I don't want him to live scared, and I don't want to be scared around him. I want to protect him. I will protect him. That's how I ended up here, parked outside the Colt manufacturing plant at 11.30 at night, Rob on my phone, with my wife talking about sits baths as he reaches over me into the glove compartment. How I ended up here is because of Rob. Rob is everything I fear. His life is the Remington against the wall that could go off. You like writing plays? Sure, they're great. This is a weird conversation to have in the middle of this. What made you want to? Write plays? Probably arrogance. I thought I had something worth listening to. And insecurity. I just want someone desperately to listen. And he asks me, you want me to put some music on? And I say, no, I'm more interested in what the fuck we're doing, man. Looks at me. He says it really simple. I know a dad who sleeps with his son's socks, he says. I know a mom who can't set foot outside of her living room. The hallways remind her too much, and they pass by her daughter's room. I know people who got up and spoke. They shared their kid, and that helped. And I know me. What do you mean you know you? I ask. I know. I won't stop thinking about this. I know I'd want him to know I did something. Dad did something. Him. His son. I won't use his name, mainly because Rob asked me not to. My son's name is Eamon. And I can't say I wouldn't want Eamon to know the same thing, God forbid, but if I wasn't able to protect him when something horrible happened, I would... I would want him to know I would do anything to protect him now. Even if it was just a gesture. I like guns. I'm doubling down. I like Guns, which at this point of the story is probably really infuriating. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Have you heard yourself? Do you need a playback? I'm like the co-worker who tells you their lover steals from them and then says, but when we're alone, they're really good to me. So, what is my problem? Well, I could quote a lot of things like, I'm scared. I'm scared of ISIS. I'm scared of home invasions, random street crime, the undeniable proof of zombies. I'm scared of for my family's safety. I'm scared for my life. I could say it's my right. I have a right to defend myself, to bear arms, to join a militia if it's well-regulated. I have the right to buy a gun, wear a gun, keep a gun, hide a gun. I could tell you I'm responsible. That guns kill people to the same degree that forks make people fat. I could tell you all that, but it wouldn't really get to the heart of it. I like guns because guns are fucking powerful. As good liberals, and I'm assuming we're all good liberals, 
We probably have never touched these machines, these ugly machines of death. And I will tell you something. After I carried the gun from my parents' house to the woods and pointed it at a strange man who I felt threatened by, I didn't immediately dive into gun culture. I wasn't getting American riflemen sent to me in the mail with Rolling Stone and highlights for kids. No one gave me my teen NRA badge. No. Power is scary. I didn't want that power. Are you kidding me? I put Remington back against the wall. For a long time, I didn't even look at it. But power... Power is like that troll in the Lord of the Rings, that, that golem, that precious. Precious shows up when I'm 16, like a demon. This guy named Steve, I know, finds a gun while we're at work. We're teammates on football, but not very close. Steve's 6'4", 225, and about to go to school on a steroid-fueled scholarship. Though our coaches still mocked him, say he's soft, no killer instinct. We were camp counselors that summer, and we played kickball and volleyball with local fat kids all day while flirting with girls a year or two younger than us. It was summer, and we were carefree. Which really makes you susceptible to anything, right? Precious. We wait with the kids at the end of the camp day. There's buses and parents to hand them off to. We wait in the parking lot to make sure that everyone was off okay. So we wait there in our matching teal shirts... Saw the buses and cars pull out, and Steve said, Yo, I gotta show you something. He waited until it was the two of us, and he began to walk back towards the tennis courts, a stretch where there was nothing but rocks. And he stops, ducks off the path, moves a few rocks, and there it is. A 380. I just found this man before last period. How? Light bounced off it. One of the kids ran through here, moved a rock or something, and there it was. So you covered it up? Yeah. And Steve asks, How much do you think it's worth? How the fuck do I know, was my answer. I don't typically fence guns, was my answer. Silence was my real answer, a shrug. Steve told me he wanted me to drive with him after work. He knew a guy. He just needed me to go tell that guy that, yes, there was a gun in the park. I think looking back, he was scared. He was soft, but I went with him. Because that's power. Power opens up other worlds. You start to live in something that feels like a movie. And that's a moment where, weirdly, you feel more alive. In the middle of a fantasy, you feel more alive. I'm not a kid with nice parents on a mundane job where I bring kids to water parks. I'm a gun runner. I'm in a small apartment, stereotypically on the wrong side of town. Literally, on the wrong side of the tracks, we had an out-of-use rail line. I'm with Steve. And it's like an outtake from a Tarantino movie. Us knocking. Who is it? From behind the front door. Uh, Steve and a friend. The guy is older than us. Bigger than us. Quiet. Bit dirty. Definitely angry. Like, true angry. Real angry. Like, you see a person hold on to on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, like they live holding that? He talked to Steve and then started to move towards his car. He drove behind us the whole way to the park. He parked behind us so we can't pull out until he does. And then we went to where we hid the gun. Same spot Steve found it. It's right here, Steve says. He moves the stone, and it's gone. The guy slaps Steve in the face, sends the Division I football player flying. 
And he looks at me, and I am ready to shit. But it's power. His anger, us being there, he, he threatens me, he slaps me, he says, he says, he says, you know, the thing is, I still don't know where that gun went. Each time I hear a story, shooting here, shooting there, I wonder about that gun and where it went. That story I use as commerce, that crazy time I had. I have a friend who has a similar one. In college in Minneapolis, he had a kid come up to him outside a convenience store and hand him a revolver, looking scared, nervous, telling him he found it on the street and he hadn't used it, he promised, but he was worried that a child might find it in the morning. And my friend felt like a kid himself. He didn't know what to do with it. So we put it in a dumpster at the 7-Eleven. Neither of these stories have anything happen in them. But they're interesting because of the main character. And stories are what I traffic in. So here I am, a guy who has drawn a gun once and scared himself, who stumbled along a gun later and became intrigued, and now I find myself in a place all good liberals find themselves. Grad school. I'm in grad school, baby. And so grad school, if you haven't been, is really a paradise. You read books and talk to people about those books. You use those books to flirt. For me, you write and share and work and talk some more. You're always talking and philosophizing and saying how the world should be and what's stupid about the world and what's wrong with the world and aren't we lucky to be here and be safe from all those savages, most of whom seem to live in Florida. I don't know why. Florida seems fucking nuts. And so... I find myself, after a big shooting, working with a few classmates, and I can't remember when because there's always a big shooting, and it might not have been a big shooting, it might have been like a medium shooting, like maybe five people died, you know, really small. But we were upset and bothered and decided to make a piece, and we would call that piece, wait for it, Trigger, because it had multiple meetings, the trigger of a gun. The emotional trigger of the shooter, the triggers in society. And so we got together and we improvised scenes. Um, why do you think you need a gun to feel more manly? No, then... Oh, it was awful. But we wrote scenes and did interviews and then we went to the gun range. And this is where the story shifts completely. I have held a gun, I have carried a gun, I have presented a gun, and still, I have remained anti-gun. And then the smallest difference occurs. I fire a gun. That's the shit right there. It's a gun range. Nothing special, just fields, a few fences, a target 100 yards away, and each of us got a turn and fired. And that was it. And not just for me. D, who was from Los Angeles, and had actually been grazed by a bullet when she was nine, had a scar right there. Wants to buy a gun. Barry, who'd been adamantly opposed. Yeah, gun too. And me? I signed up for lessons. Grad school made me a card-carrying member of the NRA. Scarily, I am probably not the first person to say that. I had been scared of it my whole life. And now... I controlled it. And as for our play, we basically said, if you don't want us to buy guns, you shouldn't let us fire them.
Each month, the NRA sends me a magazine. I used to get Shooting Illustrated, but now I get American Hunter. There's also American Rifleman and America's First Freedom. First Freedom is the most political of the magazines. It lists enemies to gun rights. It has op-eds on the hypocrisy of the anti-gun politicians who travel with armed security details. It rips the idea that gun control stops gun tragedies. And the NRA, as I told you, started out as a training ground. It started out legislating itself, seeing gangsters and moonshiners blowing up city streets saying, we can't live like this, and changing the law, demanding rule. But things grow. The world changes. Lord knows when the Founding Fathers wrote about owning weapons, they were dragging a long one-shot musket that took so long to load, you better not only have the resolve to kill someone, but you better have the whole day free to try. If you have errands, a musket murder is not going to be convenient. And so, we, the National Rifle Association, because its members are the organization, we changed too. Because of what we saw. We saw John Kennedy get shot, and then Martin Luther King get shot, and then Bobby Kennedy get shot. We lived through Manson, the hippie colors turning red. People forget the terror of Manson. Anonymous murders throughout the hills in Hollywood, the untouchables celebrities, literally gutted, race war brewing. The nation's political elite watched armed Black Panthers taking over city halls with assault rifles in hand. The police don't protect us, the government don't protect us, we protect us. The world seemed to be descending. Republican mouthpieces like Ronald Reagan, Ronnie Reagan, were shook, looking at the world they were in saying, there's no reason why on the street today a citizen should be carrying loaded weapons. And we, the NRA, tried to do what we did before. Legislation, the Gun Control Act of 1968, a minimum age for gun buyers, guns having serial numbers, barring felons to include the mentally ill and drug addicts, ID required for certain kinds of bullets. And a motherfucking storm began brewing. Like Shakespeare. A split started to widen inside the NRA. We're being harassed, says the gun dealers. We provide a service, and they keep changing the rules of the service. And the South, they understand this feeling, this sense of judgment. It's the inner cities, they say. They can't police, so they take away. They make us victims now. But what do we do? In some small corner. What do we do? I know a man who believes in what we do, who will fight our fight, who will not let them take what is ours. Who? The question goes up, and the conspirators are ready with an answer. His name is Harlan Carter. Harlan Carter, the man that would change the way the NRA worked, wasn't just another hard-headed repub with gun freedom on his mind. He was an earlier era's version of George Zimmerman. When he was 17, Carter found and confronted a Mexican teenager who he believed helped steal his family's car. The other boy was 15. And when Carter approached him, he pulled a knife. And when he pulled that knife, Carter shot him dead. His conviction was overturned. Self-defense, the appeals court said. So the plan. We create a new lobbying arm under Harlan to expand our rights and bring back our freedom. And there'll never be a better year for it than now. The year is 1976. 
Bicentennial pride is everywhere. The red and white and blue waves, amendments quoted. We will build an army for this cause, equal to the patriots of the revolution that gave us these rights in the first place. Like good Shakespeare, the battle is fraught. The NRA's old guard smelled the takeover. Call the board of directors, fire Harlan Carter, fire him, and anyone working for this agenda. We will not be strayed to extremism to fight our own government, our own citizenry. In exile, Carter and his supporters plan. There shall be revenge, as his murder sentence from his teen years prove he does not take punishment lightly. So, it's Cincinnati, May 1977. The annual convention has been moved from D.C. to the Queen City. They want to regulate guns in D.C., they will not see our money. It's just a convention, but think on that phrase. The group is in complete unrest. Carter's people have hijacked the meeting. They take the floor. In quick numbers and with surprise on their side, they immediately revise how the board of directors are chosen, recommitted the NRA to fighting gun control, and restored political lobbying to their main mission. Harlan Carter becomes Richard III, the NRA's new executive director. He cancels a planned move of the national headquarters from Washington to Colorado Springs, and he changes the organization's motto on its D.C. headquarters to an edit of the Second Amendment. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. After Carter was re-elected to lead the NRA in 1981, the New York Times reported on Carter's teenage vigilante killing and how he changed his first name spelling to hide it. At first, he claimed the shooting was by someone else, and then he recanted but refused to discuss it. The hardliners in the NRA loved it. Who better to lead them than a man who really understood the value of a gun for self-protection? And the donations to congressmen begin rolling in. I am in Connecticut, on a road, in the middle of the night, driving towards a gun manufacturer. Rob is sweating, and in the rearview mirror are flashing lights. A police officer pulls us over, and I feel like a hostage. I feel like a child who has been abducted, who is so scared they can't say anything. They, they just hope, they hope they can put out some energy, some essence that says, help, something is wrong. The police officer is young. He looks like a teenager, which is some weird shit that happens to you once you turn 35. Everyone younger than you looks like a teenager. And worse, when you're still in the arts at 35, everyone in authority looks like a teenager. It's like a very fucked up Peter Pan complex. Rob doesn't falter, and I don't speak. He has a flashlight on us. Where are you headed? Me? Oh, I'm just an accessory, but he's heading to a premeditated murder scene. Thanks, officer. Well, just make sure you take it a little slow around here, gentlemen. You have a good night. We will, officer. In my head, I play over the first few conversations with Rob. I think the first thing I did was show him a picture of my son. He asked to see it. I was surprised. He really liked to see young kids. I think it'd be too much, but he needed it. He said seeing other kids made his son seem still alive, like they could be friends. My boy in the picture... 
and his in the grave. I remember holding the picture for a long time. And it's weird as a new parent. You feel so possessive. I don't like people looking at pictures of my son too long or holding him or taking him out of the room. I don't trust. And even more than that, he's mine. And I guess in some weird way, I need that to be known. So I remember him staring intently at this picture on my phone and me reaching across and taking it out of his hand. It was awkward as fuck. From there, I would see him twice a month and we often would drive. Rob was funny because he was no nonsense. He thought talking while we drove was easier because he wouldn't have to look at me. He could just ramble and I could listen and he didn't have to worry what my face looked like while I heard him. Was I judging, sleeping, empathizing, coaching? But we would often drive. Because of his workday hours, we would meet late sometimes. It was never a thing. Tonight is a thing. Tonight. What exactly is your plan here? I'm going to ask to talk to the foreman. And shoot him? Rob. And then shoot him? My phone rings. Wife at home. Eamon at home. Come on, Rob says. There are trees around us. He is parked in a shaded area. Maybe he's worried about cameras. So if this happens, he can be murder and getaway artist. The lengths he's at. My phone rings again. I gotta answer this. He starts to walk ahead. There are a few lights on in the building, late hours. It looks like a few people are inside from what the windows show. Rob! I answer my phone and it's my wife. Are you coming home? Yes. What's wrong? I, uh, she wants to talk to you. He stops. Is Eamon up? Yes. Put him on the phone. Why? Eamon's up, Rob. Do you you want to talk to Eamon? Just before we do this, he would like to. Rob walks back to me and I give him the phone. I'm shaking. He takes it. My wife is on the line and I hear Rob. And I talk to Eamon. He sets the gun down on the hood of the car. Hey, little guy. Oh, that screech. I, I hear him squealing. I grab the gun and I am off. I'm running. In that moment, I know the gun is not a symbol. It is not a character. It's not power or, or precious. It is one thing. A means of firing a bullet into another person. That's all. For the first time since I was 12 in my parents' mudroom, I'm scared again. I hear from behind. Come back! I run. And the poet in me thinks, what are we concealing and carrying? Who are we and what do we believe? We gonna conceal our fear? Carry our powerlessness? Me. Will I conceal and carry my child? A boy underneath my coat ushered through the world, hoping I can hide him from everything that is horrible? Shall I conceal and carry myself? My stupid, self-hating self. My fearful self. My aging and growing more conservative by the day self? Carry it all to wear, and more importantly, reveal it when. Because you conceal anything for too long, and that's a powder keg. But Rob is fast, faster than my thoughts. I am galloping down the road and I think what I will do is throw it in the woods, just a nice toss out there in the dark and and hope that does it. Hope that's the end. I'm running and huffing and I realize 
I am slow. Rob is fast. I have fear. Rob has purpose. Purpose is faster than fear. The gazelle has fear. The leopard has purpose. And the leopard catches the gazelle every time. He tackles me to the ground around my waist. It's clumsy, knocks me forward. My skin rubs against the rock on the ground. It's dark, but it feels like it does when you've cut. He's just repeating, what are you doing? What are you doing? Give me the fucking gun. And my brain isn't really working, but I hear someone saying, I'm gonna throw it into the forest. I'm just gonna get rid of it. There's no one else there, so it must be me. And the gun's just this big fucking symbol now, but then it was just a gun. But it's this symbol of what could be. It's just destruction. It's Shiva. It's Moloch. The gun is Moloch. Moloch from Ginsburg's Howl. Moloch whose mind is pure machinery, whose blood is running money, whose fingers are ten armies, whose ear is a smoking tomb. Moloch, the great angel fallen from heaven, who when landed on earth he demanded children be thrown into his fiery mouth, sacrificed, and the people did it willingly. The parents did it willingly. Everyone did it willingly. What is in my hand is Moloch. He says, Rob, he says, I don't want to take it from you, but I will. I'm on my back. But I do, I turn, and I give him the gun. Only in America can a gun be handed from a liberal writer to a mass shooting survivor he's interviewing. Neither of us say anything cool. No catchphrases or movie-isms, nothing memorable. Neither of us says anything. He backs away, puts the gun in his waistband, determined, and my phone is still in his hand. From when I pass it to him, he must have just run without thinking still holding it. And right at the perfect moment for both of us, we hear come from it. It's the ringtone I gave my wife for when she calls to say goodnight with Eamon. And Rob does this thing when he hears it. He just... My writing has dealt with tragedy before. It's why Rob's friends thought we'd connect. I wrote stories about Rwanda and about the south side of Chicago, about the poor, the defenseless. And I've always had a part of me that thought, this is great, but is this my story to tell? I'm a white male. People going into buildings and shooting everyone in sight, that is my cultural story to tell. We understand the story of the powerless who, when beaten and stolen and trampled for long enough, grow enraged, snap. That's how we say it, right? They snap, like the problem is with them. What we don't talk about is the story of the powerful who don't know what to do when they perceive that power is being taken away. That is danger to them. That snaps. I look at Rob and it is so strange. I grew up with guns. And when I think about all this and my son, I immediately have always assumed my son as a victim. But what if he were the predator? That's how you go from a liberal who likes guns to a liberal who likes guns, but maybe not in his house. 
I help Rob. I put him in the passenger seat. I let him listen to the sound of Eamon cooing a message for me. And I drive. He does not ask for the gun again. He does not ask for the gun plant again. He just cries. And he listens. And out the window he stares. Outside it's raining. And on a street in a small city in Connecticut, I park Rob's car and tell him to wait. As I walk down the street and into a shop, Yankee, peddler, and pawn, 24 hours. I am wet. I look insane. I look like a man at his wit's end. A man who has had enough. And the owner asks, Can I help you? In a way you do when you don't want to help, but instead want to recognize, call out, warn, when you want to say, You look like trouble, and if you are, I will deal with you. I put my hand in my pocket. And the cashier puts his underneath the counter, and somehow I'm certain we have our hands on the same death-inducing things. And again he says, Can I help you? Yes, I finally say. Behind him there's this American flag on the wall, and I tell him, You can. You can help me. And I take out Rob's gun. Rob's vengeance. Rob's symbol. Rob's son. And I place it on the counter. I don't know what to do with this anymore, I say. Take it from me. Take it, please. Urbanite Theatre.com.